Dame Stephanie Shirley talked to Michael Barclay about leaving her home in Vienna at the age of five, going to a Catholic school in Birmingham where she lived with her loving foster parents. She achieved a degree in mathematics at night school and eventually set up her own software business. She went on to become one of the most successful businesswomen of the 20th century and devoted a lot of her time and money to philanthropy. Dame Stephanie Shirley arrived in Britain from Vienna as a five-year-old without her parents. It was 1939 and she was one of 10,000 Jewish children brought by train on the Kindertransport to escape the Nazis. She went on to become one of the most successful businesswomen of the 20th century. In 1962, working from home, she founded one of the first tech startups, an all-woman software company, Freelance Programmers, which was ultimately valued at almost $3 billion, making 70 of her staff millionaires. Since retiring, her work has been in philanthropy with a particular focus on IT and autism, in memory of her son, who had autism and died at the age of only 35. She estimates that the Shirley Foundation has given away £67 million, including setting up three autism charities. She's the author of two books and is frequently asked to give motivational speeches about women in business and her own life story. She says, I decided to make my life one worth saving. I think one of the biggest things you did was to build Concorde's flight recorder box. That had a team of 30 home-based women who all worked from home but worked as a team of 30 to deal with the 400,000 devices that were in Concord that our software had to measure, put into digital form because they were analogue equipment, and then record. And between each flight, all that had to be checked out before the next flight could take over. It was a fascinating work. You uh, achieved something quite extraordinary, I think, um, in that your company was almost completely female. But what was particular about it was that you had the idea of employing women who hadn't returned to work after having children, which, of course, was still very common at the time. Uh, and that's why working from home was so important. You said you had to disguise this when you were dealing with clients. How did you do that? Well, I had a little tape recorder, remember those? Mm. And, and on there was a noises of an office with people typing, hard typing, not soft uh, electronic typing, typing away like mad so that I had the background of a busy office, especially if um, my, my child was playing up a bit. Um, I would have a tube of Smarties by the telephone so that I could feed Smarties gently in to keep the noise level down. So we, <laughs> we, we worked very hard to maintain a professional presence and a professional facade. I think it was during this time you hit on the very ingenious idea of changing your name to Steve. Did it make a huge difference to how people treated you? Well, it made a huge difference to how my letters were, were received. So my late husband suggested that I use the family nickname of Steve. So instead of writing as Stephanie Shirley, double feminine, I had Steve Shirley. <laughs> and surprise, surprise, um, people actually answered my letters. Uh, I began to get a few meetings and I've got a good story to tell. Um, so I began to get some work. This next piece, uh, we 
both have a, a great love of. It's the Bach Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 5. I think this helps you with your work, doesn't it, this music? There's something about Bach that is mathematical and it appeals to mathematical minds, the systematics of it. As part of my work, I used to have to write sales proposals and it's a, the, the technical work had been done by other people and I had a task quite frequently, two or three a week, of putting together all the reports that my team had done and knocking it into a proposal shape. And it took me usually about five hours and I needed to concentrate without interruptions and during the day there were always far too many interruptions. So I used to always do it in the evening and uh, I'd play the Barker's background as sort of stimulus, you know, it's a bit like cows producing more milk, but I was producing better work. Isn't it just beautiful? And also motivating somehow, the, the rhythms. Yeah. The first movement of the Brandenburg Concerto No. 5 by Johann Sebastian Bach in a new recording from the Academy of Early Music, Berlin, released late last year. Alongside your professional success, Dame Stephanie, you built a happy home life. You married a physicist, Derek Shirley, who very sadly has now just left us, and you had a son, Giles. But when he was two and a half you realised that he was a very unusual child. Well, he moved from being changed almost overnight from being a very placid, easy baby to being a troubled, hyperkinetic toddler who lost the little speech that he had and never spoke again. And he was eventually diagnosed as autistic and... That has taken me into a whole new phase of my life in that, for one thing, I had to learn how to look after him properly and he finished up in, a, in an asylum. Um, these days are, are thankfully largely gone, not entirely gone. I think one of the things you were able to do uh, was to get Giles out of a long-term psychiatric hospital and set up a home for him and others with autism. Yes, Um by that time, uh, he was in the asylum for 11 years, um, which is quite a long time. In, well, it's the third of his life, really. And that was really a containment thing, that I couldn't manage him at home. So we visited him regularly. We were about the only parents that did. Uh, and then the conditions worsened, as it happens, and um, and so... My business being successful by then, um, I determined to care for him again ourselves, this time with paid help. Mm. And that led to my first charity, which now uh, looks after 150 people with the same sort of vulnerability as my Giles. Uh, it employs 300 staff. It uh, does a diagnosis. It's called Autism at Kingwood. Kingwood is near where we live. And it's proved such a, a, a wonderful way to turn that tragedy 
into something worthwhile. Mm. Giles died, as you say, at the age of only 35. He had an epileptic fit. And this music, I think, in your mind, is very much for him. Yes, I heard it almost by chance um, shortly after his death. And weirdly, because I'm not sentimental in that way, it seemed as if he was calling to me. And um, I don't think I can talk about this, sorry. Let's let the music do the speaking. Jesse Norman singing Dido's Lament from Purcell's Dido and Aeneas with Raymond Leppard conducting the English Chamber Orchestra. That's music which reminds you of your late son, Giles, and as a result of his death, as you say, you've set up a foundation for autism research. Giles died 23 years ago, and the research has moved on a lot since then, of course. What do you wish you'd known about autism when he was a small boy? I would have liked to have understood that it's a brain disorder because all those years ago it was considered to be a psychological defect which was blamed on poor parenting. So not only have you got the difficulty of, of bringing up such a child but everybody's sort of saying it's your fault which was pretty horrendous. Uh, we were described as refrigerator mothers and... Um, you couldn't have a colder term, could you? No, no, terrible. I'd like to ask you, Dame Stephanie Shelley, about your work as a philanthropist. You've given away astonishing sums of money, almost 70 million at least. What is it that makes you want to do that? Is there an element of survivor guilt? I certainly suffered from survivor guilt. I had six years' analysis at the renowned Tavistock Clinic to get me away from that. But nevertheless, it led to a lot of depression. And the one thing that really works for depression is compassion. And now uh, I'm generally a very happy person. I don't drop into depression anymore. And that is simply because I know how to deal with my survivor guilt and I'm proud of what I've achieved. Hmm. You started with almost nothing, and I wonder whether your attitude to money, to life, um, has been very much changed by uh, having so much of it. Many wealthy people change their lifestyle so that they're still worrying about that there's more month than money, <laughs> and we haven't done that. 
Um, I think partly because of Giles, we've basically gone on living much as we always have done, slightly improved, better carpet. But that means that I really enjoy the things that money can buy. It allows me to choose. It allows me to influence things. It allows me to be free to spend my life uh, as I now wish. You're much in demand as a speaker, uh, then, Stephanie Shirley, and there are great talks online at TED which testify to your power as a motivational speaker. One of the quotes I really liked was, we waste time being afraid, and what we should really fear is wasting time. I don't think you've wasted much, have you? I try not to. Um, I am lucky at my age to still have something to get up for each morning, and there are you know projects all the time. I, I don't take on 10-year projects anymore. I don't even take on three-year projects, but I take three-month projects on, and they're fascinating. I have a wonderful lifestyle. I think I'm so lucky. <laughs> Adrian Plass has written a book called The Unlocking, published by the Bible Reading Fellowship. They have given us permission to broadcast his recordings, and we hear one of them now. Lifted by Love Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, who belonged to their sect, complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When I was sixteen... I loathed myself, my face, my body, and my defensive sarcasm. I'd been expelled from school for truancy, and I had neither a job nor any visible prospect of getting one. The chaos inside my head was really quite frightening. Miserable and unpleasant, I was definitely the sort of lad my mother didn't want me to go around with. Then I was introduced to a married couple who lived in a secluded cottage near Wadhurst. Their home was a place of log fires, oil lamps, interesting books, stimulating conversation, and, as far as I was concerned, total acceptance. Murray and Vivian took the loaves and fishes of my better self and believed in me so wholeheartedly that, in their presence at least, that better self flourished and grew to a point where I actually began to believe I could be worth something. I find it very uncomfortable to remember how I viewed my relationship with Murray and Vivian after I became a Christian. The three of us were accustomed to talking happily into the early hours, sifting through various options for belief and commitment without seriously considering the possibility that we might actually adopt any of them. They received the news of my conversion with little enthusiasm for a number of reasons, and for a year or more we hardly met. My discomfort is caused by the fact that it took over 20 years for me to realise that it was God who gave me Murray and Vivian at a time when I really did need to be saved by their almost unconditional support. In the 60s, all pre-conversion relationships and events were non-Christian and bad, whereas everything that occurred after conversion was Christian and good. It seems extraordinary now 
that I could have assumed God's non-involvement in something as important as my relationship with the Staplehursts, whose unqualified support was the first and most practically effective step in the salvation of Adrian Plass. Nowadays, I thank God properly for them, and I always will do. In Levi's case, encouragement came from the Master in person. Jesus himself had said, follow me, to this man who would have been regarded by most folk as a rat. A great hope swelled in his heart. He was a failure in almost every way that really mattered. But the Lord believed in him. What a banquet there must have been. Pray with me. Father, there must be many people who at this very moment need the kind of support that I got from Murray and Vivian. Thank you so much for the people like them who do build others up. And please forgive me for sticking stupid labels on your gifts. Amen. Kenneth Stephen has written a series of essays about islands in the Hebrides. Today he talks about the Holy Island. You can hear the full programme on BBC Sounds. Ilachanerve, the Holy Island. My father was a great lover of islands, and in the course of a long life he visited many. He particularly sought to experience remoter and uninhabited ones. After his death I inherited his library, and many of his books were on the stories of Hebridean landfalls. There was one very slim and unassuming work that I kept merely because it looked so curious. It was about an island I had barely heard of before, but it took up little room and so easily found a place in the bookshelves. It was only a long time later I brought it out and read it in one sitting from cover to cover, and it started to open up a story I have been exploring ever since. It's akin to digging imagining there may be something interesting underground, and only once you've begun finding that the story below grows and grows the deeper you go. I know there's far more to find yet. But it was only when I came to live within easy reach of this island that it started to occupy an ever more prominent place in my mind. The Garvaloch Islets lie in a chain some three miles in length about five miles southwest of the tiny island of Easdale. I realise that may not convey a great deal at all. To think of their location another way, they lie in from the east coast of the Isle of Mull, not far off the broken edge of Argyll and south of Oban. The very north end of the island of Jura lies straight east of the Garvalochs. They were known at one time as the Holy Islands, but the one that's of greatest significance is the last one, lying further south in the chain, having the Gallic name Eilachanerve, the Isle of the Saints. Here on this tiny gnarled islet are the oldest monastic ruins in Scotland. Here are the only beehive cells that Scotland possesses. The foundation of the monastery on the islet is reckoned to have been about 542 AD. The ruins are pre-Columban. Pre-Columban the earliest ruins are, but they don't predate St. Columban by many years. 
and Columba was certainly here, is likely to have visited and stayed on many occasions. Here's just one piece written by Columba's biographer Adomnan concerning a visit the saint made to Ilachanerve. For this was a retreat from Iona, a place that was not loud with sacred chatter in those days when the Celtic Christian story was being written with such excitement. A place to come away to and listen again for the voice of God. At another time, when the illustrious man was staying in Hinba Island, one night in an ecstasy of mind he saw an angel of the Lord sent to him, who held in his hand a book of glass of the ordination of kings. And when the venerable man had received it from the angel's hand, at his command he began to read it. When, therefore, this angel of the Lord had appeared for three successive nights, having in his hand that same book of glass, and had pressed the same commands of the Lord concerning the ordination of that king, the saint obeyed the word of the Lord, and sailed across to the Isle of Iona, and there, as he had been commanded, ordained as king Aden, who arrived there at the same time. Why is it? that establishing for certain that this was Columbus' retreat, the place mentioned on several occasions in Adamnan's account of the saint's life, should be of such importance. Well, I've mentioned that the islet's earliest ruins are pre-Columban. It may well be that Saint Brendan, Brendan the Navigator, was here a few decades before and established the monastic settlement. His presence is certainly written into this part of Scotland, Another early monastic site is attributed to Brendan only a scattering of miles away on the Isle of Seal. Bridget may well have visited the Holy Island too, the Island of the Saints, for her name is given to another of the inlets on Eilachan Nerve. There have been many burials on the islet through the centuries, but by far and away the most important of them is supposed to be that of St Columba's own mother. Another of the inlets on the coast of Eilachanerve bears her name too. The cross marking Enya's grave stands clearly to this day at the top of a hill looking down on what has been an extensive graveyard. This little islet has clearly been of immense significance through the centuries. Just as kings and commoners alike wanted to be buried on Iona because of Columba, so did many want to be brought here to Ilachan Nerve for their last resting place. <laughs>